Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today's episode, we are talking about proof of life after life. And this can be kind of a touchy subject for some people, but what Bridget and I found fascinating is that there are so many stories of people experiencing either a near-death experience or a shared death experience. And what that basically means is someone that you care about or you know is dying or is having a family member dying, that somehow they're connected into an experience that is difficult to explain. So we went to the experts and we got Raymond Moody, who coined the term near-death experience, and his co-author, Paul Perry, who has also co-authored five New York Times bestselling books. And Raymond is the leading authority on near-death experiences. And he has a new book out called Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There is an Afterlife. And it's such an interesting topic. Just know that Bridget and I actually have had experiences that were difficult to explain. And so we're kind of believers in this. Um, From that perspective, we talked to Raymond about, and Paul, about out-of-body experiences, precognitive experiences, the transforming light, which a lot of people say, go to the light. And then they're like, no. Or stay away from the light. (laughs) Yes. If you want to stay here. Yeah. Exactly. Terminal lucidity. People start writing poetry. They start singing. There's just and the oh gosh we're gonna try to say it, Bridget okay oh and yeah, the yeah yeah psychomantium yeah which is psychomantium an, I want to yes. build one in my closet <laughs> right here <laughs> yeah Bridget will be building a psychomantium in her home but it's basically an ancient Greek technique of mirror gazing where you do all this stuff and you do some incantations and then you may actually see some spiritual let's just mm-hmm. call it a vision right and so you know. It is an interesting topic. Like what happens when we die? There are so many people that say that they have some kind of unexplained experience. And there's so many in the book that he cites too, Mm -hmm. that they, you know, see the doctor. They can tell you what they're wearing. They can say what's happening in the waiting room. I mean, there were so many of them. There were so many just, you know, things that, that there's no way the person could have known like what the person outside was wearing, that their clothes didn't match, that uh, you're, you're going to hear if you read the book too about the person that was trying to tell their spouse to run in that room and tell them I'm not dead. Can you imagine? The, yeah, can yeah. you imagine like somebody's yes. doing the shocks on your chest and you're like, okay, someone needs to know I'm not dead. Yeah, That would be yeah. frightening. It, it, it's 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 so wild, you know, and you, you uh, have had something, like you said, different, similar experiences. It, it really is because you feel that and you feel like, what is happening? Like, oh, I'm, maybe I'm just wanting to feel this. But right. then there's always something else there, unexplained things that how would I possibly know that? Why would I check that thing? And then you find out that the person beyond was trying to tell you something. So I really, you know, when I go, I want to go and tell other people. I want to help other people. And I want to come back and be like, no, no, put it here. Turn the burner off. Turn the burner off. So you want to be like a guardian angel. Oh, yes. Yes. I would love to be. Yes. Oh, that's a nice way to look at it. Yeah. And we do talk about the critics and what they believe responses to critics should be and could be. And whatever you believe, whatever side of the coin you're on, this is an interesting conversation 
directly from the expert Raymond Moody. And he is such an eloquent man and has such stories to tell that we couldn't even keep them all in there. Guys, we want to remind you, it is a little over a week. All right, like 10 days till our event. Yes. Bridget and I are working like mad women yes. to make this an absolutely incredible afternoon for Prime Women. We are thrilled that the response has been so great. Our sponsors, Laura Geller, Sinead Skincare, Trafalgar Tours, Become Clothing, Better Not Younger Hair Care, uh, Neuromatic Oils. Don't Whistle let me forget. Kettle. Thank you, Bridget. Yes, yes, kettle. Kettle. One skin. Yes. One. yes. We have such incredible sponsors that see what we're doing, believe in what we're doing, and are going to be there to enjoy the day with us. So make sure you go to eventbrite.com, get your tickets. There's 25% off right now when you go on eventbrite.com and look up conversations with prime women. It will be happening October 8th. That's a Sunday from 12 to 5 in Nashville at the Graduate Hotel, which Bridget has said many times is the Dolly Parton Hotel. <laughs> it's her favorite place because it's all pink. And we would just... Uh -huh. Love to see you and a group of girlfriends join us. But first, let's talk about life after life with Raymond Moody and Paul Perry. We'll talk to you after. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today, I always say we have interesting conversations, but truly, this one we have not had before. And we are talking to Dr. Raymond Moody and Paul Perry, who are co-authors of Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife. Now, I, I you know, I'm all for, I'm jumping in head first because I've had experiences myself, but I think a lot of people are skeptical about this and are like, hmm, I don't know if I would, you know, enjoy reading this or I would read it guys. If you can get a hold of a copy, go to the bookstore and read it because it's fascinating. And there is so much research and hundreds of experiences that are documented that we just don't even know about. So welcome to the show, Raymond and Paul. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was a great, very nice. Thank you. Thank well, you. you you were telling us beforehand how much time you put into creating this book. So, do you mind, um, Paul, starting with that? Uh, probably twenty-three years ago, uh, we started talking about uh, this category, which we'll get into later. About called shared death experiences, and we had collected a number over the years, and in in many of our books, we've had shared death experiences in the books. But we were sitting out on Raymond's porch one day, and I said, let's, we were working on a book called Paranormal, which is a memoir of Raymond's life. And, and we started, ran into a bunch of shared death experiences that we'd written down over the years. And I said, let's just do a book on shared death experiences. And, and then the subject dropped. <laughs> and then a few years later, Raymond was visiting me in Arizona. Raymond lived in, in uh, Alabama at the time. And while he was visiting me, he then went to a conference, I believe, in, in Las Vegas. And his mother spoke to him and said that, uh, uh, you know, she had a rash on her hand. She wasn't feeling so great. And I'll let Raymond explain that, but she passed away. And Raymond and his entire family experienced a shared death experience, which he'll explain in a minute. And at that point, from my side of the story, I, I wrote a proposal for this book. And like I said, this is probably 23 years ago. 
and passed it around to everybody we know in publishing, which is a considerable number of people. It was over 20 editors looked at this, and uh, they didn't want it. And that's happened before, and the book has always been a, a huge bestseller. When everyone rejects it, it's, it's perfect, perfect timing. But everyone rejected it, and then they all rejected it again. We had our, Nat, our agent, Nat Sobel, send it out again several years later, and it went nowhere. One day, I was in Sedona with my wife, and we were talking to, uh, uh, we, we share friends with the publishers of Beyond Word Publishing, which is a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster. And we were having breakfast with them. And I told them about this book, and they just said, I want it. You know, how quickly can you get me a, a, a treatment? So I pulled out my iPhone and sent them the treatment right there. And they picked up this book. Then Simon & Schuster, who had rejected it at least twice, I don't think they remembered they even saw it. They got hot about the book. And, uh, and that's where we are. Right. Well, uh, when I wrote Life After Life, I wrote it in 1974. It was published in 1975. My first book on near-death experiences. At that time, I knew from, from one case from my own wonderful professor of, um, of psychiatry, uh, Mar Martha McCraney was her name, that that Martha had had all of these symptoms or signs of a near-death experience, getting out of the body, seeing this light in the tunnel, seeing her mother pass away into this light. Um, not when she was, per, you know, ill herself, but when she was resuscitating her own mother. So even when I wrote Life After Life, I knew that this thing sucked would sometimes at least once leak out to the bystanders. But that was the first, you know, the first case. But, uh, you know, I was doing my psychiatry residency. I, you know, there was only so much time I could put into this research. In the late 80s and early 90s, I began to just focus more interest on these cases of people who were there at the bedside who had these, these things that, Otherwise, we would call a near-death experience. That people would say that they would, as grandma died there in the bed, that they would leave their own bodies and go partway toward this light with grandma. Or people would see apparitions of the dying person's uh, dead relatives come into the room. The room would fill with a light. And incredibly, this is the most mind-boggling part of all of it to me, is that there are apparently quite a respectable number of people who, when somebody else is dying, that the bystander will empathically co-live the dying life review of the person who's passing away including this panoramic vision in which they see the person's And um, so I was putting this together, and actually it was in 1994, Paul. I remember I went to that conference out in, uh, in Las Vegas, but before that, you and I had been to some place where I showed, I just asked how many people in this room, you remember, have had one of these shared experiences, and there were a lot. So we were talking about it for some time. And then in June of 94, my mother died. And we, I, we were there in the room, and I had this experience. I mean, I, and, you know, it's like 
when something that happens like that to you personally, you, I mean, I, I was baffled. I mean, it really changed the way I thought about things. This thing we're working on now, it, it's even wider. It's, uh, we bring in all of these other astonishing experiences that, experiences that happen when people are on their deathbeds, including, for example, uh, numerous cases of people who, as far as their family knew, never had any interest in poetry or music while they were alive, will suddenly on their deathbed start reciting poetry, sometimes making up poetry on the spot, and sometimes singing. I mean, there's cases of people actually sing their way out. You know, this is an astonishing array of things that go on uh, in the dying process, which the general public doesn't really know about. And, and sociologically right now, it seems to me, at least by my own observation, there are flocks of people in that middle age period, 50s, late 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, who are, you know, had had spent their life in a workaday occupation and for, focused on work, and now is a natural phase of psychological life development and midlife. Interest in this starts perking up. This is what happened with Raymond with near-death experiences. Is no, many people had experienced them. Many many people had experienced them, but they but they didn't know what they were. And so when Raymond named and defined them, all of a sudden people start saying, I've had that happen. And uh, they sort of came out of the closet about their near-death experience and started talking freely about it. That's going to happen with shared death experiences. For example, what he was just talking about there was uh, earlier was people, as they're dying, they start reciting poetry are singing songs beautifully and they had never sang in their life. That's a form of, of a shared death experience called terminal lucidity. And it's when people who are uh, on their deathbed suddenly pop out of, of death mode and, and they start talking coherently about family business or about their love of the people around their bed or telling the people they want a milkshake or in some cases, they actually start to recite or write in their heads poetry or music. The book talks about seven reasons to believe there is life yeah. after life. And the first one we do talk is out-of-body experiences. And you share some great stories in the book about out-of-body experiences. And, you know, for a lot of people, they go, oh, the person was just dreaming or, you know, their subconscious was, you know, sharing stories. But you share stories in the book about people who actually leave their body, go see someone, can tell you what they're wearing, or in one person's sad case, what their brother-in-law was saying how he was going to be stuck at a funeral um, instead of going where. So can you talk about the first element, which is out-of-body experiences, Paul? Many people, I'm going to say at least a third of the people who have near-death experiences have out-of-body experiences. Is that, is that right, Raina? Well, it's a high percentage, absolutely. People who, oftentimes people who have out-of-body experiences have the sensation of leaving their body, all right? And, and at, at this point, in all the years that we've looked at this, I do believe that they are leaving their, bo their body. But they have no objective proof of it. So their subjective proof is, is that, hey, I felt like I was leaving my body. I was zooming away. And, and I know I left my body. But they don't have any objective proof, only subjective. 
So what we did with this book is this book is based on objective proof of these various experiences. So when you get to near when you get to out of body experiences, objective proof generally involves someone who leaves their body and is then able to go someplace else or look down at an operating table if they're they're in surgery and they're able to describe certain things that they should not be able to describe. And the one that you mentioned was was Vi Horton, who's one of uh, uh, Raymond's oldest friends. She had an uh, uh, out-of-body experience. And I forget what she was in for. Was it gallbladder surgery? She had surgery? a gallbladder surgery, and he had, she had a cardiac arrest during the yeah. surgery, which lasted for 40 minutes, according to her doctor, who told me this directly. So. so so during that period of time, <clears throat> she left the operating room and she went into the uh, uh, waiting room. <clears throat> and that's when she saw her daughters. Her daughters came in. They came in from, uh, I think, from school. And they were both dressed in like mismatched plaids. So she reported having seen that. Her brother-in-law was on the phone and he was uh, uh, he was dressed for golf, I believe. And he was talking to a, a friend who was supposed to meet him for golf, and he said, "I'm not. I'm not going to be able to have play golf today. Uh, it looks like Vi is going to kick the bucket." And then she went on to see other things that she was able to report, and and uh, that made it all a, a an objective shared death experience because she was able to report things that had actually taken place during the period of her unconsciousness. And I'm baffled by what many physicians of over the years have told me of being utterly astonished that their patients who were in a state of cardiac arrest could subsequently report accurately what they, you know, when the, the operating room or whatever. So, and, and, you know, even when these things happen to you directly, it's it's very hard to compute them. I mean, it's um, sure. these are very difficult things to understand by the rational methods we employ, and yet they do happen. Can we talk about skeptics for a minute and how how do they explain these experiences, or how do they distinguish them in a scientific way to make it sense in well, their head? Well, Please, I, would, wait a minute, but I would really like for you to tell the story in addition to what you're going to say here about uh, Mr. Ayers. Oh, A.J. Ayers. A. J. Yeah. Well, um, okay. Uh, it's like I am, this is a touchy point for me because, not because of anything to do with near-death experiences, but because one of my favorite subjects is Greek philosophy, and I, I love to teach Greek philosophy, Okay. And so my trouble with these so-called skeptics is that when I get to teach when I, Greek philosophy and I get to the skeptics, I have to go back and correct the damage that these people have done to my students' minds. Because people who tell you something like, oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences, I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. That sentence is a self-contradiction. It doesn't mean anything. Because let me explain what a skeptic is. The skeptic movement was formed by Pyrrhus, about 
roughly 30 years after the death of Aristotle. But, you know, in that period of time, even during the lifetime of Aristotle, there was some you know, sort of movement toward this. But Pero's idea, I mean, he understood logic very well. But the question was, if you think of logic as a way of generating a conclusion from premises, then the skeptics said, well, what if we, we follow the method assiduously, we really bear down, but we don't draw a conclusion. That's what it means. And the reason they did it was that, number one, they find that by assiduously practice it, it really does bring about an astonishing mental transformation. I can detest, man. But, but also, more important practically is that if everybody else is jumping in this way to get to the conclusion, but your technique is to avoid the conclusion, you see things along the side paths that everybody else has missed. So what are these people who call they're not skeptics when they say, I think about this sentence, given what you know about skeptics now. I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences. I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. To expand that statement is I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions, and my conclusion is such and such. That doesn't make any sense. And these people are not skeptics. They are members a religion called humanism, which is, you can read all about this, they have magazines and so on, but in terms of this, the what so-called skeptics say, well, if they know what skeptics means, I'm willing to listen to it. And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back. The things I'm curious about, Paul, is like the third thing you guys talk about, which is the transforming light. Because so many people say, oh, don't go to the light. You're going to go to the light, you know. What is it that people see? <laughs> you know what I mean? They always say, don't go to the light. What do people see well, as far as this say, light? don't go to the light because that's where they want to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's a, great, uh, that's a great aspect of that because... Some people just see a bright light that has substance. And they don't know what it is, but it's comforting. Uh, They'll say that it contains, but sometimes it has a form to it, but they can't tell if that form is God or Muhammad or what. But they'll, but they'll, they'll call it what they think it is. So you get a lot of people who see the light and they see Jesus or they'll see dead relatives that they were always comfortable with uh, or other religious figures. For the moment, they say that they, uh, they acquire, uh, many say they acquire all the knowledge in the world. But when they come out of their near-death experience, they've forgotten most of it. And they're very frustrated as a result of having forgotten it. Uh, it's transformative. It's called transformative for a number of reasons. One is that the people who have had uh, a bright light during their near-death experience tend to be the most changed. In a study that I worked on with Melvin Morris called the Transformation Study, we looked at people who had had near-death experiences. And and the people who had seen light were people who had type A without the anxiety is really what they came out to be, is that they had a real uh, desire to achieve knowledge but weren't uptight about it. They were type A, they were in love with life as opposed to the old type A, which wasn't necessarily in love with life, was, but was interested in getting it done, whatever it was. Uh, 
Melvin also did studies on children and near-death experiences. And he found that the most transformative aspect of it with children was the, the bright light and that children would be transformed well into their adulthood after seeing uh, the bright light during their, their near-death experience. That's true of adults as well who have near-death experiences, is that they, the bright light is very transforming. And once again, it turns them into uh, type A without the anger is essentially what it is. Well, you know, what we hear too, Paul, as you know, is people talk about a sense of urgency, which is what you're describing. That's a phrase they often use. And, um, you know, I've spent my life pursuing knowledge. I, so I am very impressed in many of these cases where George Ritchie, the finest person I ever knew and the first living person I ever heard this from, was a professor of psychiatry at UVA. And, and um, George said that it, at times, and, and I've heard this from many people, it's just George's experience in my life, and my life was so important, but he said he saw this panorama of everything you'd ever done. It was timeless. He was seeing it all at once. Mm -hmm. And he said this being he was with, this being of light that he identified as Christ, and he said when there were panels or parts of this hologram, whatever it is, that he that George was learning something, that this being would kind of slow down hmm. and fuss in on it. For, and he said there's no words, but that the effect was that the thought came. That's very interesting. That even after you come over here permanently, this process of knowledge goes on. And and George and many others have said that as I gather they say that this process of knowledge goes on literally for eternity. That's what people say. I want to go back to, and I, I may not be pronouncing this correctly, so please um, help me with it. Um, the psychomantium. Uh, yeah. Yes, that sounds so fascinating. And, you know, I'm reading at the back because you even give instructions on maybe how to make your room, you know, make that in there. Can, can you talk can about you? what it is? Yeah. When Raymond when Raymond came up with this idea, uh, I thought he'd gone mad. And <laughs> 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 it was just so, and then he just kept developing it and developing crazier until it didn't. Yeah, this is, you know, the funniest thing is that this is built into Western civilization. I found out about it when I was 18 years old, reading the Greek historian Herodotus, who talks about this oracle of the dead. And I had also known about it from the Greek playwright Aristophanes, who was a comedian. He kind of made fun of it. And so, you know, it... And, but it was just a part of Greek society. They had these places where you could go and you would go through procedures during which you would seem to see and converse with de departed loved ones. And this was just part and parcel of being Greek. It was not anything regarded as exceptional. Well, <clears throat> I remember reading that in Herodotus, and at age 18 and thinking, well, he had to have a bad day. I mean, it couldn't be. But to make a long story short, in the mid-80s, I read an archaeological report on the most famous oracles of the dead, the very one that Herodotus mentions. 
And they had found in there, they had found what they found was enormous bronze cauldron that was in a subterranean chamber that was lit by torchlight. And immediately I realized what they were doing because I knew that even in, this is, I mean, there's a great history behind all this, but um, many people over many civilizations for thousands and thousands of years have discovered that when you have an optical clear depth, in the Middle East today, for example, they, they use a silver bowl, okay, you highly polish it on the inside, you fill it with olive oil, okay, and then by candlelight, uh, you, and often there's an incantation, like nonsense words that come with it in the ancient recipes, like, um, uh, you know, just magical nonsense words. And in these circumstances, it's the fact is, incredible as it may seem, that people who go through this after preparation actually do have experiences in a waking state of consciousness, which they interpret to be a visitation with a departed loved one. It sounds so astonishing in, you know, 21st century America. It was common knowledge in 19th century America when people had, um, instead of TV or radio, they had parlor games, right? And so people knew you could set up a mirror by candlelight. You could call up grandma. I mean, it was just part of the folk culture. And it's been repeatedly, you know, rediscovered by people you know, through centuries. But um, so, as Paul was saying, after I read this uh, report, I had to try it out. And so I did, and I set it up. And I was thinking if I did, say, 50 cases, I would get five people who would have an experience, and then I could write a paper. But my, my initial subjects, they were psychology graduate students. These, some of them were already counselors. They were just coming back for further education or whatever. Mature folks who knew about the mind. So with that setup, I thought, well, you know, if, I, if any of these people haven't experienced, they'll say, well, yes, yeah, saw an image in the mirror. It looked like my grandma. But was it real or was it a figment? I don't know. Rather, what happened instead, that it's more like 60% of the people who try it on the first attempt have some sort of experience which they intend to be a visitation from, and even years people recount this as though it was an important event of their lives. And this happens all the time without a mirror, too. It's a common thing that people have visitations or apparitions of their departed loved ones. But this is a way that's been known literally since antiquity. In one case, a woman came to see her son who had died from AIDS. Uh, she was unable to do that in the psychomantium. But back at the hotel room, he came into the room. They spoke like we're speaking right now. And uh, and I believe she said, how do I know you're really here? And he picked her up and hugged her. Yeah. Wow. And that's not the only case like that. There's other cases yeah. like that. Well. And it sounds incredible, but all you need to do is to set it up for yourself and see. Try. That's <laughs> no, nice. That's what okay, I would Bridget. to do. I would, I'm like, we're this doing podcast it. room is a closet. Oh, I mean, this is a great right? psychomantia. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk a little bit about 
you talk in the book consciousness and soul. Because if you try to take the religious aspect out of the conversation, because mm. everybody's going to think it differently. And like you said, someone's going to see it as God. Someone's going to see it as, you know, a million different religious figures. But what yeah. is the, are consciousness and the soul the same thing or are they different? Paul, you start and then I we'll jump in. I see them as interchangeable. I, th- I see the words as being interchangeable. How about you, Raymond? Well, you know, in philosophy, the problem of personal identity is a big problem. And, and, I, and this, is, what is it that constitutes our self, our personal identity? Plato sort of got the ball rolling. It's the immortal, immaterial soul. Okay. Mm-hmm. That did pretty well up until the first 1500s because. You know, you could have gone to the stake for contradicting that, right? But in the 1500s, where things loosened up, Thomas Hobbes, you know, it doesn't make any sense to talk in immaterial. I mean, what are we talking about in the first place? John Locke, who was kind of a a a non-American founder of our Constitution, um, tried to solve the problem, and he said, well, our conscious, our self consists of our consciousness and our memories. But the great skeptic David Hume said, well, when I look at myself, I, I see only the impression of the moment. I don't see any lasting thing. And a lot of modern psychologists have sort of given up on the concept. But if you're asking where I come out on this, and, and a lot of people my age do when I spent a year as a geriatric psychiatrist talking to really, uh, you know, eloquent and accomplished older people who were there for situational stress or loneliness mostly. But I heard constantly during that year, you know, Raymond, the older I get when I look back at my life, I think it's been a play or a movie, a drama, a novel, a story. So I think, you know, it's where I think is that what our consciousness is, is narrative. It's like you are the story you're, you're going through and everything that whenever anything new happens to you, what do you do? You weave it into your life story. You know, I think in common sense, we imagine this impermeable, unpassable wall between this life and the next life. But the older you get, you see, to the contrary, it's for many people. You know, over the years, I've known quite a number of people who had multiple near-death experiences over a period of years, most commonly because they had some cardiac problem was the usual reason. And maybe he went to the other side and came back three times or so in their life. Or are you that all the millions of people who say, yeah, grandma came and visited me last night. I mean, those are just normal human experiences, if you ask. So what they indicate is that it's not exactly an impervious wall between here and there, that it's kind of more like an mm-hmm. in-and-out scenario. Yeah, and the big thing, you know, that throughout your book was how people want proof of something. Everybody wants proof. Right. And, and But the way that you all went about collecting the stories and, and doing the research did that. It, it provides proof. It just, you know, when we're going back to just the stories from people, what they saw that could not be explained that they could have seen this and just the things that were said that could not be explained. 
in the book, you describe the 14 common traits of a near-death experience, which we've talked about most of them here. And I thought one of the really interesting things was when you were talking about the five senses are still there when you have an out-of-body experience, because a lot of people will say hearing is the last sense to go, so talk to the person, let them hear you. But you're saying like all five senses are still... What they say is that your senses are amplified in a whole... People say, I have to say that I saw it because I saw it was like a visual experience, but it was not like vision we have here. For example, people who are blind in this life will say that when they have those experiences, they see, they have this other sense. And incredibly, I hear people all the time saying that there's like a, a, a telescopic zoom effect to it. That it's when you're over here and you want to see something over there, it's just like zoom, you're right in on it. And um, yeah, and people also say that these colors that don't exist. Yeah, which is very difficult, because then when you ask them, well, what is it? They can't, it's one of those things they can't describe. They can't exist. If you guys had to pick maybe one of your favorite stories that really showed you, wow, I'm on the right track here. I believe in this. This is really showing me that there is an afterlife. Well, there's so many. Uh, and I'm not going to say there's so many. I can't tell you which is the best because I can tell you some of the ones that I think are the best. But the one that I would like to talk about is the one that happened to myself. And it was not a near-death experience, but it was an experience, uh, a form of shared death experience. And that is that... Uh, in, I believe my mother died in 1994. She may have died earlier than that. But uh, as she was dying, I was contacted by uh, a friend who was the head of neuropharmacology, University of Washington, Vernon Nepi. And Vernon Nepi, in addition to being, you know, the ordinary genius, he also he also studied a lot in paranormal experience. And he was working on... Uh, uh, a big body of research on deja vu. And he and I planned to write a book about deja vu. And it just never got off the ground. So I hadn't seen I hadn't seen Vernon for at least five years. I hadn't talked to him, I had thought about him, hadn't seen him. And the day my mother uh, was dying, uh, I got a phone call from Vernon. This was before we had iPhones. And I had a phone call from Vernon and he he said I was I was reading the paper this morning. And a voice came on and said, uh, call Paul Perry. And I ignored it. And about an hour later, I had gotten to the sports section. And the voice again said, call Paul Perry. So I'm calling you, and I don't know why. But this is an MD, PhD. So, you know, like you, he's a, you know, someone to be reckoned with. And, uh, and I said, well, that's funny. You know, my mother's dying right now. She has uh, dementia. And uh, I just don't know if there's anything we can do about it. And he said, well, there is. And then he told me things that he had done, some experimental things he had done with some patients. And meanwhile, the phone is beeping, telling me that there's someone else on the line. So I said, Vernon, I'll call you right back. I've got to answer this. And it was the care facility saying that my mother had just died. Now, I considered that a shared death experience. It seems to be too big a coincidence to be just coincidence. Is there a story that sticks out to you? Yeah, well, like Paul said, I mean, I've talked to thousands of people. They are all 
interested, right? But the one that sticks out to me, not so much for the content of it, because that's been in all, you know, thousands of others, <clears throat> but rather the personal connection. And that was the Dr. George Ritchie was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia when I was an undergraduate philosophy student. And his, he is from Richmond, Virginia. And my mother and father are from Porterdale, Georgia. Okay, and George's experience took place December 24th, I believe it was, in 1943 when he was an army recruit who was found dead in the bed for double lobar pneumonia. They, Dr. Francie, the physician, said, you know, this is the most amazing thing he's ever, he's been involved with in 40 years of medicine, he said. And he, George was apparently dead, but it's to make a long story short, the ward boy who found him had never seen anybody his age die. So he just talked this ward boy into, I mean, the ward boy talked the doctor into injecting adrenaline into George's heart. And he came back with this amazing story of us. Now, I heard that in 1965 when I was, it was I mean, it just changed my life instantly because he was just such an amazing character. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you both for coming on today. This has been incredibly interesting. And we suggest everybody go out and get Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife. Paul and Raymond, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the folks listening in, too. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for this. We want to thank Paul and Raymond so much for being on our show. I cannot believe that I actually got to talk to the person that coined the phrase near-death experience. We will be doing an extra episode on Sunday with Mindy Cohen. We have her on talking about the event, the fact that she is our special co-host, what you can expect, how this all kind of came about, and that will be up on Sunday. So make sure to check that out. Have a great week, guys, and we will talk to you next time. Bye.